As Jess shared her story this morning, I was just reminded of God's grace in this ministry here. Um, I, uh, many of you know just the challenges we had early on, and uh, you know I was this close to just stepping away from everything before God began changing things. And uh, sometimes people will ask me, like, Joel, I want to start a church. Tell me what you did. And my response is often, you, you don't want to do what I did. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, like, everything I tried didn't work out, and then God just did His thing. Um, it's God's grace, not man's strength, by which we are here literally, as a church. And so I want to focus on our failures this morning. Man's inability, so that we might see all the more clearly the ability and the power of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us today as we read and think, as we hear your word proclaimed. I pray that it would be indeed your word not man's. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A man was in a park playing checkers with a monkey. And a crowd, of course, gathered around. <coughs> Excuse me. As the crowd gathered, everybody is in awe. Someone remarks, wow, that monkey is amazing. And finally, the man who's playing checkers with the monkey turns in exasperation toward the crowd and angrily exclaims, I don't know why you think the monkey is so amazing. I've beat him seven out of ten times. Some of you got that. Some of you think that it's sad that the man <laughs> lost three times to a monkey. The funny thing about that story is, is how the man misses the point, right? He is so focused on himself. He is so intoxicated with who he is. He's so focused on his own wins and losses that he misses the bigger point, and that is that there is a monkey playing checkers, and that makes the monkey pretty amazing. How often... Do we encounter Christ throughout our lives? How often do we experience the goodness of God in Christ or through His church, through His people, uh, and live for many years often uh, knowing who Jesus is around the people of God, yet we miss the point? This is what I see in this text. Luke contrasts the glory of Jesus with the failure of His disciples. He contrasts the point, who is Jesus Christ Himself, with His disciples who miss the point over and over and over again. The first section that Dee read today is what's typically called the transfiguration in verses 28-36. through 36. And I've preached on the transfiguration two times here, one not too long ago, so I'm not going to spend much time on these verses. Uh, but 
what I want to point out is that we see at the beginning of this passage the glory of Jesus. Jesus transfigures. His face and His clothing shine and become white and beautiful and magnificent. And we see just for a moment the glory of Jesus Christ. And He appears with Moses and Elijah who together represent the Old Testament. And they're having a conversation with Jesus. And only Luke lets us in a little bit on what their conversation is about. In verse 31 it says they spoke of his departure. They spoke of his departure. I wonder if you could have a conversation yourself with Moses and Elijah, what would you talk about? Or maybe even more so, if you could have a face-to-face, in-the-flesh conversation with Jesus Christ, what would you want to talk about? I wonder how many questions that we would love to bring them about our challenges or our problems or our sufferings or just, you know, interesting points of how the world came together. We like to talk about so much, but how often is His departure, a.k.a. the cross, the topic of our conversation? When Moses and Elijah get an opportunity to have a conversation with the Son of God, the Messiah, there is only one thing on their mind. They want to talk about the cross. We talk about so much. We talk about sports. We talk about problems. We talk about work. We talk about challenges. We talk about kids. We talk about strategies. We talk about making money. We talk about not having money. How often do we talk about the point? How often do we talk about His departure? The crucifixion. The mystery of the cross. The glories of the suffering of the Son of God on our behalf. It is no coincidence that conversation about the cross is coupled with a display of His glory. And we see in this moment just a glimpse as Jesus is transfigured. He is the point. He is glorified. He is beautiful. He is wonderful. And then we go to the next verse and it begins a series, verse after verse, of failures on the part of His disciples. And that's what I want to focus on today. We see He is able. We see they are unable. We see five different failures. First, His disciples are unable to serve the needy. His disciples are unable to serve the needy. We see this in verses 37 through 43. I'll use again my own uh, failure as an example here. Uh, I remember at one uh, point a couple years ago, I preached a sermon here at the Garden Church, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be a good sermon. I came into the pulpit with a good bit of fear and trembling and, and really utterly dependent on God. I had one of those conversations with God uh, before that sermon, which I have often had, uh, which goes something like, God, 
I uh, am not thinking well about this text. I can't see my sermon well. Please don't hold that against my people and speak to them this morning uh, in spite of my weakness. And um, God did just that. And I remember I preached that sermon and it came with the power of the Holy Spirit and there were souls that were saved that morning, that were encouraged that morning. I had so many people just thanking me for bringing that word. That week I had a a request, hold up, (laughs) that week I had a request to preach at uh, another church and I thought to myself, ah, I got the sermon. It's a good one. And so I took that sermon into the pulpit entirely self-confident, reliant upon self, ready to impress, ready to see the Spirit of God slay everybody in the room as I preach. And it was an utter failure. I walked out of there humiliated. I stumbled through my words. On our own strength, my point is this. We have nothing. We have nothing. We are utterly unable. We're unable to serve. And this is what I see first in the text. The day after the transfiguration, or a couple, uh, yeah, the day after, the next day in verse 37, Jesus is met by a man in verse 38. His son has a demon, and he wants Jesus to take the demon out of the boy. What's interesting is in verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples, and they could not heal him. It's almost as if the camera pans out just a little bit, and we see these disciples hanging their heads. Completely unable to serve. Now, remember, they were just sent on a missionary journey where they were going from town to town, preaching the gospel and healing and casting out demons. And now they are utterly unable. Luke is showing us something. He is showing us what we all have experienced. And that is we get some success by God, by God's grace, and then we go out on our own. We, we help somebody. And then we think we are some genius. We, we, we uh, serve somebody in some fashion and somebody's impacted by our service and then we start promoting our ministry skills. Trying to get gigs. So we can market this thing. You help one couple with their marriage, and you think you're some love guru. Or maybe you're a parent, and you've raised one child, and they turned out all right, and you're going to look down on everybody else who's having some trouble with their kids, and come along all high and mighty as if we've got all of the answers in the world. And we are then in that place completely unable to serve the needy. We have no power. Do you realize that when we are serving each other, whether it is through random conversation or a prepared talk, 
when we are serving each other, we must do so prepared. Prepared by the Spirit of God. On our knees. Trembling. Utterly reliant on God. Basking in His presence in order to be able to speak a word of encouragement to somebody. On their own, they are unable to serve the needy. Secondly, we see, I'm going to move quick. They are unable to understand the gospel. We see this in verses 43 through 45. They are unable to understand the gospel. While the crowds marvel at this healing that Jesus has performed, Jesus wants His disciples to hone in on the big point. Because Jesus is clearly getting a little frustrated with the crowds. How long am I going to put up with you? You're, you're missing the point. I have not come just to heal. I've come for a greater mission. And Jesus keeps reiterating this. He wants us to see the point. And so Jesus then turns to his disciples in these next verses. And he tells them that the Son of Man is about to, verse 44, be delivered into the hands of men. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. That's the point. And listen, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that's the point. This is why we gather. This is why a lot of churches have crosses in their buildings and on their buildings. That's the point. We need the cross because God is a holy God that created us to reflect His image, but we have rebelled against Him. And because of that, our rebellion has incurred upon us a curse for sin. And that curse is death, a.k.a. hell. Meaning if you get what you deserve, you go to hell. I don't want to mince my words. I want to be clear. Because we have to understand that to understand why the cross is the point. Jesus came for this mission to die for the sins of rebels. So that we might be freed from the curse. So He took death upon Himself on the cross. He took the punishment that should have been mine and Jess's and yours. He took it on Himself on the cross. And He paid the price for sin. He's redirecting His disciples away from His miracles and healings and exorcism because He wants the, the disciples to see the point He's here for a, a greater mission. But it says here, and this is what's interesting to me, in verse 45, it says simply, but they did not understand. Listen, you need a supernatural ability to understand why Jesus died. All you need is a historical mind to know that he died that's not enough you need a supernatural mind to understand how that relates to you that he died for you and family if you're hearing this and believing that jesus died for you that means that you've been given a supernatural ability to understand but they don't have it they don't understand because the natural mind cannot understand this. And secondly, it says that this truth was concealed from them. This is part of the curse. It's like a double blindness. 
It's like a blindfold put on a blind man. They cannot understand it in their own strength. They don't know the gospel. Thirdly, the disciples are unable to be truly great. They're unable to be truly great. Verses 46 through 48. Since they cannot understand the gospel, they can't understand true greatness. Again, we see this contrast between Jesus and the failure of his disciples. Jesus was just transfigured before them. Jesus just healed and uh, and exercised a demon in front of them. Jesus just told them he's about to die. And here we find His disciples arguing about who of them is to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Do you see the contrast? Do you see their inability? Do you see their utter failure? And don't you see us in that failure? Like we live not by our own abilities or strength. We live by God's grace. Like everything that good in your life you do because of God's grace. You're a faithful, single Christian because of God's grace. You've been able to stay in a marriage because of God's grace. You thought to get up and come to church this morning because of God's grace. You're able to work a job and contribute to society because of God's grace. You're able to do something in the church because of God's grace. You're able to go out into your block and into your community and do something good in the community because of God's grace. And then someone else gets recognized for their accomplishments and you feel a certain way. Why wasn't I recognized? And then, whether we play it off as humble or not, uh, at the very least in our own minds, we begin having conversations with ourselves about who among us is going to be the greatest or is the greatest. Family, we have no clue. We don't understand God's greatness because we're missing something about the Gospel. The greatness of Christ is seen not in political votes or popularity. The greatness of Christ is seen not in praise from this world in front of man. Jesus, I don't think, ever received one trophy in His life. He never received a certificate of accomplishment. I don't know of any time in the Scriptures where uh, one of His disciples stood up and and just said, I I just want to say a few words and give a toast to uh, the man that we all love, Jesus Christ. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like That wasn't His life. The Son of Man came to serve. And how did He come to serve? He came to die. He came to lay down His life for sinners who are utter failures. Greatness is seen in service. 
in laying down our life for others. Greatness is seen as Jesus brings a child to His side in becoming small, in becoming humble, in becoming like this child, in simply presenting Jesus to our friends. That's greatness. Now notice in the text, Jesus doesn't say, if you become like this child, you are the greatest. You receive this child, you are the greatest. For he who is the least among you is the greatest. E-S-T is not on the word. He just simply says he is great. Meaning in the kingdom of God, there is no competition to greatness. There is no greatest in the kingdom of God outside of Jesus Christ himself. The point is this, is if we lose ourselves to Christ, you are great. As you lay down your life for others, you are great because He is great. Because it's not about me, it's about Him. Are you tracking with me? Let's go on with these failures, shall we? Are you guys enjoying this? Do you enjoy seeing how we are all miserable failures? Number four. Number four, his disciples are unable to respect others who are different. They're unable to respect others who are different, verses 49 through 50. I don't tell many people this, but I do CrossFit. I don't tell many people that because of the connotations that come along with CrossFit. CrossFit has somewhat of a tribalistic culture to it, meaning if you do CrossFit, um, you typically think uh, that there is no such thing as a healthy person outside of a CrossFitter, all right? So like a lot of CrossFit people, like, they find out you go to Planet Fitness, oh, <laughs> well, you're not really in shape. I mean, I'm glad you get on those machines once in a while, but, you know. But it goes both ways. So I talk to my bodybuilder friends, and uh, when they find out that I do CrossFit, they say, ugh, you don't do anything correctly. You're, you're ruining yourself. <laughs> we expect that in the world. Sort of, you know, are you part of my tribe? Do you do it the right way? You have to be just like me in order to fit. We expect that in the world. The reality is, is because we are still sinners, saved by grace, but we're still sinners, we, we also bring that into the church. And we fail to respect others who proclaim Christ that do things differently than we do or that have different convictions about important subjects. In the next story here, we see this from the disciples as well. They get rebuked by Jesus. Here in this, this next story, the disciples, in verses 50, uh, 49 through 50, they find a man who's casting out demons. Now first, remember the disciples themselves were unable to cast out a demon just a moment ago. And they find a man casting out a demon. Secondly, note that the man who's casting out demons is doing so in the name of Jesus. Number three. Sorry, I lost my place. Number three. The disciples 
recognize that this man who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus is not part of their tribe. He's not part of their inner circle. He's not one of the twelve who is walking with Jesus. And so, number four, the disciples stop him. Look at verse 50. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, we don't know anything else about this man. We can assume that the disciples probably had more information about Jesus correct because they literally were walking with Jesus every day. We can assume that this man may have had some deficiencies in his doctrine or his understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, It's just an assumption because he wasn't one of the twelve. But what Jesus says is, where we agree, we agree. Where he's for you, he's for you. If he's truly, like he evidently heard about Jesus and is believing in Jesus, if he's proclaiming Christ... In that place, He is not your enemy. He is your friend. Yet we create so many ins and outs. Republican Christians versus Democratic Christians. Woke Christians versus not-so-woke Christians. Baptists versus Presbyterians versus Methodists versus non-denominational types who present themselves as non-denominational, but they're really Baptist. (laughs) Calvinists versus Arminians. I don't know how many times in all of my circles that I run in that I, I hear language that just casts doubt on somebody's conversion simply because they come from a circle that they're not familiar with or that has some things that might be wrong. I've actually uh, uh, met African-American Christians who have admitted to me that growing up, they didn't think any white Christians were actually Christians. And I I know some white Christians who would question your salvation if you come from a traditional black church. The inability to respect others who are different. Or maybe as it, as, it, as it relates to our doctrine, you know, when I was about 20 years old, 19 years old or so, I became a Calvinist. Now, that doesn't make any sense to any, uh, some of you. Uh, it's basically an understanding of how God saves, that God saves by His strength through uh, electing us and, and uh, completely by His grace. Now, when you become a Calvinist, you go through a stage where, which is called cage stage. All right, this is a season in which you would be better off put into a cage because you're going to do more damage than good, all right? Now, I wasn't put into a cage, and I I was invited to preach at an evangelical Catholic church. Now, this is a Catholic church that had distanced themselves from Rome. They actually denied uh, uh, some of the things that the Roman Catholic church would embrace, and they believed in, for example, justification by faith alone. Well, I was invited to this Catholic church, and I went in with John Calvin and Martin Luther and one hand and the other, and I went in guns blazing, right? I saw myself as a modern-day Luther coming in to reform this Catholic church. 
And I was very disrespectful in tone and in what I preached. Uh, I remember I, I spoke to their youth group, and I basically told all of them, like, you need to get the heck out of Dodge and get yourself over to a Calvinistic Baptist church. Because, of course, Jesus cannot move anywhere else. We slide into this in all sorts of ways. If they're not familiar, we question it. And we question whether or not you can truly experience God's grace in a circle where they might get some things wrong. This isn't, by the way, to say that convictions don't matter. As a matter of fact, you can only be tolerant if you have convictions. Otherwise, you're merely indifferent. It's not to say that convictions and uh, and beliefs don't matter, but what it is to say is that the power of the gospel is just that. It's the power of the gospel. Not the power of being right. Not the power of having everything dotted and crossed. Not the power of, of, of our ecclesiology logically making sense to us. It's the power of the gospel. And the reason we struggle to respect those who are different is because we are so filled with us. Because they don't look like us. Because they're not like us. And again, we're getting back to the same problem, and that is missing the point of Jesus. And lastly, number five, the disciples are unable to show mercy. Verses 51 through 56, they're unable to show mercy. A man went into a counselor's office and he had big burns on both sides of his face. And the counselor asked him first question, how did you get burned? And the man said, well, I was severely intoxicated and my phone rang. I received a phone call and I picked up the phone to answer it, but it was actually a hot iron that I picked up. And I burned my face. The counselor said, well, you have burns on both sides of your face. How did you get the burn on the other side? And the man said, the fool called me back. (laughs) We are so intoxicated that we repeat the same problem over and over and over in slightly different ways and burn ourselves again and again and again. Those who we really destroy and hurt are ourselves. They're, they're so intoxicated with themselves, they just got rebuked for stopping the man who's casting out demons, and now they somehow find a way to make the same mistake in a slightly different fashion. In verses 51 through 56, Jesus and His disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem now. And they're scouting out a Samaritan village for them to camp in. And they're rejected in this village because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews and evidently the Samaritans in response hate the Jews as well. And when they find out that this is a group on their way to Jerusalem, the Samaritan village refuses to give them shelter. As a response, as you can see in the text, 
verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, feel this rejection, they want to call down judgment upon this village. Now, keep, keep this in mind. The disciples were just now, just a few days before, unable to do something good, casting out a demon. And now they think they can do something destructive. So often, family, we are so quick to be able to bring destruction on somebody, yet we don't believe we have it in us to do what is good and right for them. We don't take the time to walk with somebody and encourage a saint and and share the gospel with the lost, but we are so quick to use all of our thinking and skills and spiritual gifts to bring down condemnation on the unrepentant sinner. This is their response in verse 54. When James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus responds in a rebuke. He rebukes them. They are unable to show mercy to the unrepentant sinner. In their mind, they cannot understand why God would withhold wrath from fools. And they cannot understand that God is currently withholding His wrath from fools. They might not understand why God is being so patient with these Samaritans. But they can't see that God is being patient with them. because they are intoxicated with themselves. As we think about this passage, two handles for you to grab onto as we close. Number one, know it is possible to be around Jesus and never be changed. Know it is possible to be around Jesus your entire life and never be changed. Be changed. This haunts me. I am haunted by the fact that I could fake it in ministry. That it's possible Sunday after Sunday, day after day, week after week, to do strength in your home, in your family, in your apartment, with your roommates, or with your spouse, with your church family, your small group, your Bible study, whatever that might be, to live out your faith at your job, and to do so apart from any real transformation from Jesus Christ. To ultimately not know Him. To know Him, yes, but you don't really know Him. You've never met Him. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who might be where my wife was at prior to 2011 and say, I have lived many years believing that I'm a Christian and I know I'm not converted. Have you ever been transformed? Has the Spirit of God ever moved in and assured you of His love? Giving you the grace of repentance? It's possible to be around Jesus your entire life and to never really be transformed. 
Secondly, God doesn't choose us because we're great, but He chooses us because He is great. God doesn't choose us, family, because we are great. He chooses us because He is great. Because He can do something with fools, with people who are unable, with people who are a complete mess. I never thought in all of my life that I would use a Homer Simpson illustration in a sermon. But there's been one, this little comic floating around on Twitter this last week, and it fits so well for my sermon. So let me introduce Homer Simpson into the pulpit. Homer Simpson buys this Bible for $15. He's complaining about the price, by the way. He buys this Bible for $15, and he's reading it, and, and he says, everyone in this book is a mess, except this one guy. That'll preach, church. Everybody in this book is a mess, except this one guy right here. There's something about Jesus. He stands apart from the crowd. He is the one human in all of the Scriptures who is not a mess. Adam made a mess. Abraham was a mess. Moses was a mess. David was a mess. The disciples are a mess. Everybody in this Bible is a mess except this one guy. And that, I think, is the point Luke is trying to make in the way that he puts this material together. He wants us to see that they're all a mess, but Jesus, that dude's got it together. Listen, church, when we believe that we in and of ourselves have the strength to change somebody, when we believe that we can know truth on our own and get big-headed and proud, when we believe that only our tribe or, uh, or the garden church is faithful, everybody else is screwed up and messed up, when we lose patience with unrepentant sinners, we are in trouble. And I wonder, as I'm reading this, why did the disciples want us to know these things about themselves? I mean, think about it. The only people on this planet outside of Jesus who knew these stories were the disciples themselves. Why did the disciples preserve these stories? Why did the disciples share these stories with others and they were written down and preserved for us as God's infallible, inerrant Word. Why? Why would the disciples want us 2,000 years ago to be reading about their failures and their inabilities? And it's because of this. The disciples knew 
By the time these stories were shared, by the time these things were written down, oh, they knew that Jesus was the fairest of 10,000. They knew that Jesus was the lily of the valley. They knew that Jesus was the bright and morning star, the sun who comes over the horizon of all of our darkness and brings beauty into our life. Why did the disciples want us to know these stories? I think it's the same reason that Paul the Apostle said, if I boast at all, I'm just going to boast in my weaknesses. Why? Because where I am weak, He is strong. That is the point. The point is that Jesus is the point. Everybody is a mess except this one guy. I am saved today not because of what I am, who I am, not because of what I could do for myself. I'm saved today because of who He is. Oh, church, I am unable. I am unable. I know my wife shared a beautiful testimony earlier, and I praise God for it. And she said nice things about me in the testimony. But listen, I am unable. I was able to kind of do some things during that time because of God's grace. She's able to stand up here and share that testimony, not because she is able, but because of God's grace. We are unable. He is able. That is the point. I believe the disciples recorded these stories for us to give us hope. Because we are a bunch of failures. Oh, we are failures. And sometimes, church, if you're honest, you feel like a fraud. Oh, if I'm just found out. And then we realize that the church is made up of a bunch of people just like me, and we wonder, what is our hope? Well, we got to get our eyes off of ourselves. Jesus didn't say, you will build your church. Jesus said, I will build my church. We are unable, but He is able. As Jesus is messing with these fumbling disciples, it is worth noting that Jesus didn't dismiss them. He didn't say, I'm going to go find me some other 12 disciples who can understand, who have it together, uh, who, who, can, who can do something in this world. No, Jesus was patient even with them. Jesus taught them, and Jesus saved them. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who is going to give you power to testify in all of the world. And these same fumbling idiots changed the world. Not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus is. The disciples want us to know that Jesus is incredible. Since we are unable, we are to give Jesus all of the glory. The same apostle 
who said that he will boast in his weaknesses thinking about Jesus Christ, he said this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the glory in the church, at the Garden Church, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we are people saved by Your grace. We thank You, God, that You have revealed to us that we are indeed failures. And God, that is freeing for us. Because in our weakness, You are strong. And You have given us everything we need in Jesus. Your church will continue to be built in this world because of Christ. Our personal spiritual lives will continue until the day we die. We will be kept in heaven until that day when our bodies are made new and we live forever with You. And that is all because of Your grace. We thank You for Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Amen.